Now we're going to look into Philippians chapter 4. We've been reminding ourselves that life is full of happenings, many of which come our way, and without any warning, we are required to respond or react to them. Given that we have no forewarning very often of the things that come our way, the reactions that we have are very often either intuitive or instinctive, and they are indicative of what is actually going on inside us. In the same way that if you squeeze a tube of toothpaste, the kind of toothpaste that's inside squirts out. Whatever happens to us, that which is inside squirts out. And so it's a timely word for us that Paul gives us when he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The big question, of course, now is, well, what's a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Now, today, we're going to notice that what Paul is telling us is, whatever happens, don't worry. (laughs) That's right. You heard it right. Whatever happens, don't worry. Now, I know, I know that some of you are sitting out there and saying, well, if he was sitting where I am instead of standing up there, he wouldn't say, don't worry. If he was having to go through what I'm going through, etc., 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 Well, the fact of the matter is this, that you don't know what I'm going through, and I don't know what you're... Well, I do know what some of you are going through, but that is basically irrelevant. Let me tell you why. Because I'm not going to tell you, hey guys, this is how I've learned not to worry, and you should do it too. That's That's not the approach. The approach is that the scriptures, listen very carefully, which are eternally true and therefore are always contemporaneously and universally relevant, tell us how to handle worry. Did you get that? The scriptures, which are eternally true, and therefore are always contemporaneously and universally relevant, tell us what to do. So this isn't Briscoe, who say, you say, well, he's a pretty laid back sort of fella. He doesn't worry. He's not wound up tight. He's not a worrier like I am. Don't say that. Just simply let your heart hang over this scripture and see what it has to say to you and and to me as well. So whatever happens, don't worry. That's the theme. Let me read to you now from Philippians chapter 4, commencing with verse 4. This is what he said. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, there's a very straightforward, really quite startling passage of Scripture. Notice it gives us some very definite instructions and it gives us two monumental promises that are relevant for all of us at all time. 
Now, we're going to be talking about the fact that we need to learn how to handle our anxieties. Given that our world is full of anxiety-inducing situations and an anxiety-inducing people, it is not unusual for people to be worrying and anxious about their lives. That's as far as the people they know and the events that they're experiencing. But there's another dimension to it as well, and that is the future, the unknown, the uncertainty. It's the uncertainty and the future and the unknown aspects of life that often are the anxiety-inducing factors. Uh, Mark Twain said, my life has been full of many problems, most of which never happened. Now think of that for a minute. My life has been full of many problems, most of which never happened. And what's he referring to? He's referring to the fact, presumably, that he had looked at the future, the unknown, with a degree of uncertainty and trepidation, and had spent a lot of time being anxious about things and worrying about things that actually never happened. My life has been full of many problems, most of which never happened. What then is anxiety? I thought I'd better make sure about this before I talked about it, so I checked in the dictionary, and I was really quite interested in the definition. It said, anxiety is concern respecting some event, future or uncertain, which disturbs the mind and keeps it in a state of painful uneasiness. Well, that was rather interesting. In fact, a rather graphic description for a dictionary. Concern which disturbs the mind. I, I was intrigued by that statement because the Greek word that is translated anxiety or anxious is made up of two words, actually. One word for the mind and the other word for divided. And it has the same idea that anxiety is all about the disturbed mind. Turmoil in our thinking. But notice that it goes on to say that this disturbance of the mind keeps it in a state of painful uneasiness. This chronic sense of pain, this ongoing sense of uneasiness, or if you like, dis-ease. That is the anxiety that so often we experience, either because of the situations that we're in that we can't change, or because of the things that we dread in the future. Now then, listen very carefully to what the Scriptures say. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm afraid that very often, because of our worrisome situations or because of our fears and trepidations about the future, we settle into an anxious state of mind and decide it's normal. That's just how it is. Hey, these are my circumstances. What do you expect me to do but worry? What do you expect me to do but to be riddled with anxiety? Well, over against that normal attitude, we have these remarkable instructions of Scripture which tell us that something should be done about it and we do not have to be living in that ongoing sense of a state of painful uneasiness. Well, you say, this sounds a little bit ivory towerish to me. 
I think it's important for us to remember that the Apostle Paul was certainly not sitting in an ivory tower writing a doctoral thesis when he wrote these words. He was actually writing from very real circumstances to people living in very real circumstances. And we'll see in just a minute that the circumstances in which both he and they were living were fraught with anxiety-inducing situations. For instance... Right off the bat, we know that Paul was in prison at the time that he wrote this letter. We know that it was no holiday camp either. And we know that there was a very real possibility that he was staring straight into the face of an executioner. And in actual fact, he was eventually executed. Well, I would suggest that's anxiety-inducing. If you're in prison, no chance of getting out and you know that possibly your execution date has been set. In addition to that, the Apostle Paul was very much concerned about the little churches that he'd planted around the Roman Empire. His concern, of course, was that the culture in which these churches had been planted was, as he described it, crooked and depraved. And he knew that there's always the tendency for the society having a corrupting influence on the church more than the church will have a positive impact on the society. And so all these new believers scattered around where he traveled at great personal cost were under the gun. This would be anxiety-inducing. The Philippian church had sent one of their young men to him, a man called Epaphroditus, And he had come specifically to help Paul in his difficult circumstances. Soon as he got there, Epaphroditus got sick. There wasn't proper medical care for him, and he almost died. And he had to confront the reality that there was sickness and there was disease, and quite frankly, there wasn't adequate medical care to deal with it. In addition to that, People had been following Paul around wherever he'd gone and they'd been downgrading his work. They had been smearing his character. They'd been ripping on him and making false accusations against him and many people had turned against him. In addition to that, in the churches, there were some people who were making a total mess of things and Paul was deeply upset about this. This is what he said. I've often told you before, and now I say it again, even with tears. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. And as far as the Philippian church was concerned, there were two prominent leaders in it who were going head to head in a big knockdown, drag out fight. And there was a very real possibility that the church was going to be split wide open. So we don't need to go into details. There are just some of the things that he was dealing with. This is not ivory tower talk. This is somebody who understands that there were all kinds of disturbing things surrounding him and the people to whom he was writing. What then does he tell them to do? And the answer is basically, learn not to worry whatever happens. To which they no doubt responded, easier said than done. Well, that's true. In fact, probably we could say more things are said than done. But we need to be looking seriously into it. So look at the protocol that he gives us here. Six steps to dealing with worry and anxiety. The first one, 
in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Here's the first step to dealing with anxiety. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Presumably they weren't listening the first time. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? First of all, I would suggest it means that we recognize who the Lord is. Now, it is perfectly possible for people to form their own picture of God. In, in fact, very often you'll hear people saying things like, well, I wouldn't believe in a God who would do such and such a thing. Or, well, uh, I don't think God would ever do that sort of thing. And what they're really saying is that they are creating God in their image. Now, this is a fatal mistake. We do not create God in our image. We were created in His image. What we're required to do is to study carefully God's self-revelation. Now, notice that expression, God's self-revelation. It is not our imagination. It is not our speculation that gives us the accurate picture of who the Lord is. It is His self-revelation. And we find that in Scripture. Now, immediately, my mind went to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Just a few verses earlier than this statement, Rejoice in the Lord. This is what it says. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a whole lot of information concerning who the Lord is that we're supposed to rejoice in. Who is this Lord? Well, he is Jesus. That's his name. It means Savior or Deliverer. He is Jesus Christ. That is a descriptive title of his work and ministry. He is the anointed sent one of God. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the title of his authority. He has the place of ultimate authority. He is in heaven. That means that he resides and presides over the affairs of this world. But he says it is from thence that we eagerly await him. So this Lord Jesus Christ in heaven is the one whose return we anticipate to establish his eternal kingdom. Now, I'm just racing through that little sentence there just to give you an idea of if we're going to rejoice in the Lord, we need to be aware of who the Lord is. But then the second thing that we do is we then relate to what he does. We recognize who he is. We relate to what he does. Read on. It says that the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. What does it say about him? It says that he has power available to him that enables him to bring everything under his control. All right, put those two things together. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, in heaven, from whence we anticipate his return to establish his kingdom, exhibiting such power 
the kind of power that enables him to bring everything under his control. Now, now we're recognizing who he is and we're relating to what he does. Now then, we are to rejoice that we are found in intimate relationship with him. What is this intimate relationship with him? It is a relationship where we have committed everything to him and he has committed himself to us. A mutual sense of commitment so that all that I am is entrusted to him and all that he is, he's entrusted to me. And I get so excited and exhilarated that I rejoice in him. Now, if I begin to think in terms of who he is, and I begin to recognize what he does, and I constantly remember that I am in intimate relationship with this King of Kings and Lord of Lords, guess what happens? It affects my worrying. It affects my anxieties because I begin to relate to who he is, what he does, and the fact that I'm committed to him and he is committed to me. So there's your first step. The first step in handling anxiety and worry is rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. All right, here's the second step. At first sight, it doesn't look as if it's particularly relevant. For verse 5 now goes on to say, let your gentleness be evident to all. The word translated gentleness here can also be interpreted sweet reasonableness. Now look at it this way. When we have anxiety-inducing situations coming our way, there's always the tendency to fight them. There's always the tendency to resist them. In fact, we can begin to resent them. Now, you, you know what I'm talking about. There's a, this person here who's worrying me silly. There's this situation here that is absolutely driving me nuts. And everything inside me resists it. Everything inside me wants to fight it. Everything inside me is beginning to resent it. And I find myself tense. I find myself stressed. I find myself in this painful state of uneasiness. Right? Hello? Am I, am I right? Isn't that the way it goes? I mean, you're all experts on this subject. Why am I doing all the talking? <laughs> so here's the situation. This is what Paul says. Instead of resisting and resenting and fighting the things that are anxiety-inducing, respond to them with sweet reasonableness. Now, this takes a little thought. Let me give you an example to see if this helps. A very dear friend of mine, well-known pastor, had a very, very effective ministry for many years. One day was shocked that his daughter, his beloved daughter, the apple of his eye, announced she was going to move in with her boyfriend. Now, this was in complete opposition to everything that the girl had been taught. It was in diametric opposition to everything that her parents stood for. It was in flat contravention of all that the church stood for. It was a very, very challenging, potentially embarrassing situation. 
Now, how do you handle that? Well, you resist it. You fight it. You resent it. You get all uptight about it. You get upset about it. That would be a normal reaction. What they did, actually, was respond with sweet reasonableness. Let me explain it to you. This is what they said. We don't agree with what you're doing. We don't approve of it. These are the reasons. This is what we understand to be the correct approach to sexuality. This is what we believe to be what God ordained from the beginning of creation as far as the relationship between man and woman is concerned. We believe that sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage and to engage in this kind of behavior outside of the confines of marriage is in flat contradiction to all that God ordained for your well-being. This behavior is contrary to everything that you profess and it is potentially self-destructing. You understand our position, we don't approve of it and we will never mention it again. Point one. Point two. We trust that we, even though you're going to do this, you'll continue with your college education. And she said, oh, yes, I'm going to do that. And they immediately said, and how are you going to get to college? There's no public transport. And if you're not living here, you've no wheels. Oh, she said, I'll think of something. They said, that's not good enough because we know that you won't get around to doing it. So this is what we're going to do. We will make a car available to you. You will pay the insurance and the fuel on condition that you continue your college education. Number three, we're going to ask you to come and have dinner with us every Wednesday night in response to our gift to you of this car that will make it possible for you to continue your college education. If you will come every Wednesday night, we promise that we will never raise the subject with you, but your boyfriend is not welcome while you continue to live in this situation. What were they doing? They were stating their position. They were making it abundantly clear that they did not condone her behavior. They were not getting into a big fight. They were not getting into an anxiety-inducing situation by increasing the tension. They were responding with generosity under certain guidelines. I suggest to you they handled it with sweet reasonableness. She lived, as far as I remember, with her boyfriend for about a couple of years, and then one day her younger brother got married, and she was invited to be part of the wedding service and when she stood there in this wedding service and was reminded of Christian marriage and the beauty of two believers coming together in holy matrimony with her father presiding over the wedding, she burst into tears, rushed to her dad and said, I'm sorry, I was wrong, can I come home? And they were reconciled to each other she went on eventually to finish college. She matured. She grew up. She married eventually, has her family, went to the mission field. And I can't say she's lived happily ever after for the very simple reason she hasn't lived ever after so far. But there's an example. There's an example of sweet reasonables. So we rejoice in the Lord 
And instead of attacking and resisting and resenting the things that are inducing the anxiety, we begin to handle them with a sense of the fact that the Lord is in this thing. We don't have to react that way. It is possible for us rejoicing in him to bring sweet reasonableness to bear upon it. The third step is the reminder, the rather terse, somewhat enigmatic reminder on the part of the Apostle Paul here, the Lord is near. That's what he says. The Lord is near. The, the term that he uses here can mean near either in terms of time or in terms of space. And probably he, he used this expression in this way so that both could be applied. What that would mean is this. Bear in mind that the Lord is near to you spatially. He is present with you in the situation. That's the first understanding of it. And the second thing is, and the Lord is near in terms of time. That was a technical expression. The coming of the Lord draws near. The reminder that the Lord is working according to his timetable and is working inexorably towards the consummation and completion of his kingdom. Put these two things together. The fact that the Lord is present with you in the situation and the reminder that he is working in the affairs of men to the consummation of his own plan and purpose, guess what will happen? You put that into your thinking and you'll begin to discover that some of the painful uneasiness is beginning to dissipate. As you rejoice in the Lord, as you respond with sweet reasonableness, and as you bear in mind the proximity both of the Lord in your life and of his soon return. But then the fourth thing he gives us, do not be anxious for anything, but in everything, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Now this word, that is translated from the Greek into the English word anxious also finds its way into Philippians earlier on and is translated quite differently. Speaking of Timothy, Paul said this, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. And the word interest there means he is genuinely concerned for you. Now, when does legitimate concern become illegitimate worry? That perhaps is the big question. The same word is used in two entirely different senses, one positive, one negative here. Let me try to help clarify this. When does legitimate concern become illegitimate worry and anxiety? Let me suggest this. Legitimate concern becomes unhealthy worry and anxiety when concern is focused on the things we think can secure our lives, when only God can. I'll give you that again. Legitimate concern becomes unhealthy worry and anxiety when the concern is focused on the things we think can secure our lives, when only God can. Let me give you an example of this. In the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus talked to the people 
And he said, now you're all anxious about what you're going to eat. And he said, look at the birds of the air. They get fed, don't they? Your heavenly Father's caring for them. And now you're all worried about what you're going to wear, aren't you? Well, look at the flowers of the field. Aren't they gorgeous? Your heavenly Father's looking after them, isn't he? Oh, and he said, and you're worried about extending your life, your fitness. Now he said, how many of you by worrying can, can do that? And he said, and you're worried about your finances. He said, I'll tell you about your finances. He said, if the moths don't get it, the rust will. And if the moth and rust don't get it, thieves will steal it. And one day you'll leave it all anyway. What he could have added if he'd been a contemporary preacher was, and if the moth and rust don't get it and the thieves don't get it, the IRS most definitely will. (laughs) Well, the, the point he's making is this, that people are worried about their lives. They want to make their lives secure. So how do we make our lives secure? By making sure our finances are right, by making sure we eat all the right food, by making sure we look after our fitness. In other words, all these things that we think are life. Jesus said your life doesn't consist in the things that you have. Your life is a gift from God. Your life is sustained by the grace of God. The point of your life is that you are here to honor and glorify and enjoy God. And the end of your life, you will stand before God and give an account of your life. But your trouble is this. You lost God and you spend all your time worrying about your finances and your food and your fashion and your fitness and your family. All these things are legitimate when they are handed over to God. But you haven't done that. You lost God and worried about all these things. When our concerns are focused on the things that we think will secure our lives, they will degenerate into worry. Instead of us recognizing that the orientation has to be and who God is in this thing, and with prayer and supplication, we make requests to God. About what? About our food, about our fashion, about our fitness, about our finances. And we relate all these things to him, listen, with thanksgiving. Thank you, God, for this food. Thank you, God, for these finances. Thank you, God, for this measure of fitness. They are all gifts from you. Thank you, God, that none of these gifts from you will take the place of you. Thank you, God, that I can talk to you about all these things. Thank you, God, that you're interested in me talking to you about these things. Thank you, God, that as I talk to you about these things, you'll give me wisdom to keep these things in perspective. Oh, and by the way, God, thank you very much. Now I've handed all these things over to you. They're your worry, not mine. Does that make sense? Hello? Does that make sense? Rejoice in the Lord. Let your sweet reasonableness be known. Remember the Lord is near. 
And in all the things that we think life consists of, make sure that you're relating them all to the one from whom they come. Knowing that when you hand them to him, they're his concern, but bearing in mind when you keep them to yourself, they're your worry. Which would you rather have these things be? God's concern or your worry? Well, it's a no-brainer if you can do it. Now, there are two other steps. I don't have time to get into them now, but you can check them out yourself. One is to make sure that your mind is fed with the right things. And there's a beautiful list of the right things to feed your mind with instead of filling it with worries and anxieties. And the final thing is, and then do what you know. Do what you know. We could have a talk on worry and anxiety. We could follow that in our Bible. We could actually incredibly follow the outline. We might even unbelievably make some notes of our own. We might actually remember to take it home. In fact, we could even call our daughters and tell them the details of the talk all of which is admirable and utterly useless unless we do something, which is what? Do what we know. Do I know how to rejoice in the Lord? Have I got some ideas how I can respond with sweet reasonableness? Can I fix my mind on the fact that the Lord is near? Can I begin to relate the things that I think my life is all about to the one about whom my life is all about? And can I begin to fill my mind with healthy, positive things? And will I do it? If I will, then there's two promises. Two very simple promises. The first promise is this. The peace of God that passes understanding will be with you. The second one should read, and the God of peace will be with you. The peace of God will guard you and the God of peace will be with you. Two great promises. I don't have time to get into them right now. Just quickly, this idea. The peace of God is a supernatural dimension of the character of God that is given to you as a gift, and it is beyond understanding. It is beyond understanding. That means it is far transcendent above anything that you could figure out for yourself. All your schemings, all your desirings, all your plannings to get everything sorted out would never, ever produce this peace of God. It is something that he will give you that you could never figure out for yourself. And it will act as a guard like soldiers standing in a fortress. And it will guard your heart and mind. And the other promise is this. As the peace of God is granted to you, the God of peace will stand with you in the situation. Let me give you a little picture that you can take away with you. I want you to imagine a little house with two rooms. It's yours. One room is called heart, and the other is called mind. In the room called mind, that's where you think things through and arrive at some conclusions. In the room called heart, that's where you have your feelings. 
heart and mind. Some people have a bigger room for mind and a smaller one for heart and the others vice versa. Coming up the steps to this little house with two rooms in it called heart and mind are two mean, ugly-looking dudes. One is called anxiety and the other is called worry. And as they make their way up the steps, they are talking to themselves. And one says, well, I'm going to move into room called mind. And the other one says, I'm going to move into room called heart. And we'll have a ball. And as they're making their way up the steps, and they just come to the front door, and they're going to bang the door down, two burly characters step out of the shadows, stand in front of them with their arms folded, tower over these two mean-looking dudes and say, and where do you think you're going? And they said, we're going in here and we're going to move into room heart and room mind and we're going to have a ball. And the two burly characters say, no, you're not. Well, one of them says, I am the peace of God. And the other one says, and I am the God of peace. And you guys don't belong around here. You have no access whatsoever into this little house anymore. And with a quick, dexterous movement, they grab worry and anxiety by the scruff of their neck and the seat of their pants, and they hurl them over the hedge and dust their hands and say, next. And I would submit to you that the message is a very simple one, a very basic one, and an incredibly challenging one. And it is this, whatever happens, don't worry. That doesn't mean just become irresponsible and thoughtless. What it means is you know how to rejoice in the Lord. You know how to rejoice in the Lord. It means that you know how to develop sweet reasonableness in your response to these situations. It means that you bear in mind the Lord is near. It means that you begin to relate the things that you depend upon to the one upon whom you really depend. It means that you fill your mind with the positive things that are going to enrich you. And it means that you do what you know and then you claim the promises and you claim the peace of God like a God over your heart and your mind. And you claim the God of peace to make his presence felt within your heart and evident through your life. So whatever happens, don't worry. Let's pray. Lord, you know our hearts, and you know that right now some people are worrying about this message. They're worrying about how they're going to stop worrying. And it's going to take your spirit. It's going to take your spirit taking the truth home and convincing us it is true. It's going to require your spirit empowering us in the areas of our weakness. It's going to require the work of your spirit giving us confidence where we are singularly lacking in it. It's going to take your spirit to empower us to put into action the things that we know that for years we've just allowed to lie fallow. And that is why at the conclusion of this time of trying to expose your word to people's hearts and minds, we remind ourselves once again that it's not by argument and it's not by reasoning and it's not by explanation 
that our lives are touched and changed. But it's by the gracious work of your Spirit. And so we ask that the evil one would be hindered and thwarted in his desire to snatch away the word. And we pray that the good seed will fall into fertile ground. And the result will be a considerable degree of freedom in many a life here today. Hear our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.